Welcome to Same Old Song, the lectionary podcast of Mockingbird Ministries, an organization that exists to connect the Christian faith with the realities of everyday life. As always and ever, I'm Scott Jones, your co-host. In just a moment, I'll be joined by Jacob Smith, the rector at Calvary St. George's Episcopal Church in New York City. He and I will be your guide every Tuesday to a grace-infused, cosmopolitan look at the lectionary passages for the week. We'll do our best to help both pastors and churchgoers alike to connect the never-changing truth of God's grace as found in these texts with what feels like an ever-changing and sometimes confusing world. And we'll do that all in 25 minutes or less. Same old song back again. Double duty this week, Jake. Double duty. Well, that's because the devil never never rests and neither does uh, same old song. Nope, nope, nope. He does not take off between Christmas and New Year's even. So neither shall we. That's right. So we are uh, bringing you the heat uh, this Christmas day. Maybe um, today or tomorrow you're going to be up late thinking about what the heck am I going to preach on? Or maybe just what do these readings mean for for us today? And so uh, we're going to be giving you uh, the golden nuggets that come out of each of these three lectionary readings today, Isaiah, Hebrews, and John. Let's jump in to uh, Isaiah 52, um, a wonderful, powerful passage. Um, uh, one of the great pieces of inspired one of the great pieces of Handel's Messiah. How beautiful are the feet? Um, but uh, what's going on here, Scott? Well, you know what's interesting about this text is that Luke doesn't cite a text from the Old Testament in Luke two, which is the Christmas Eve reading. Uh, he doesn't expressly cite anything, but it's clear that that story shaped in part, at least, by Isaiah fifty two, right? Because you have uh, the good news comes to those who are guard, who are guarding the ruins of Jerusalem after you know the Babylonians Israel's conqueror is conquered mm. by Cyrus the Persian who is like a modern day Donald Trump who allows people to say Merry Christmas again now um <laughs> <laughs> the war on Christmas is over I, th- so it, what we have here is there's good news is coming to those who are guarding the ru- ruins of Jerusalem in Luke good news comes to the shepherds who mm. are guarding the sheep in the hills that surround Bethlehem. And Isaiah, this message that your God is king, it, 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 it comes to them. And the angelic messenger in Luke declares that the Messiah, it, it, the one with you know, the Davidic royal title is to come. The, the child will be the ideal king who's going to sit on the throne of David in Jerusalem and complete the return from exile. Mm. And, and Isaiah, the guardians of the city shout for joy because they're seeing the fulfillment of God's promise to return, of return from exile as being fulfilled. In Luke, the angels talk about good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. And you have this prophetic messenger commands people, commands the very ruins of Jerusalem even to break into song. And in Luke, a multitude of the heavenly hosts offer praise because as uh, the coming because God is coming just like he was to Zion in a greater way through the incarnation of his son, Jesus. So you can see how Luke here is is doing some creative things seemingly with Isaiah 52. 
I love in Isaiah 52 as well, this is in a whole series of texts of comfort. You know, the next is the suffering servant and all of this and how God is going to uh, redeem and renew Israel through this, this, this Messiah. And, uh, and the powerful thing is, is that the Christmas story is always connected to the cross. I think there's um, an idea amongst a lot of preachers and amongst a lot of Christians too, that there's a separation between this manger story and this, and, and and the and the crucifixion and uh, but the two are intricately linked and when you can tie the manger scene to the cross uh, you are preaching the gospel and you are preaching and heralding the good news of christmas and this really is what uh, Christ is, manifest this babe in the manger, becomes the holy arm of our Lord, who before all the nations is lifted up, and uh, all the nations on the cross, in this counterintuitive way, see the salvific work of God, um, which um, is the suffering servant, uh, which is found in the next chapter. So, you know, when you're preaching on Christmas Day and uh, and throughout the Christmas season, you need to tie the manger into the cross. And Isaiah 52, becomes a great way to do that. Yeah, and some of the connections I just drew were from a scholar named Leslie Hopp, mm. who it, it wrote the entry for this passage in a great set of commentary, a, a great lectionary commentary put out by Erdman's. It's just broken into first, second, third readings. And he concludes his reflection on, on the passage with these words, which I think is, are quite helpful. Despite the New Testament's assertion that the coming of Jesus was the fulfillment of ancient Israel's religious hopes for the future, religious Jews find the Christian celebration of Christmas based on a belief that stands in direct opposition to the most fundamental of Jewish tenets, the oneness of God. Still, the church continues to find in the Old Testament words of spirit and life. Today's lesson from Isaiah reaffirms the church's belief that judgment is not God's final word. The good news is that God's movement into our lives is to accomplish salvation. The experience of ancient Israel exemplifies that good news. The judgment that Israel experienced as a consequence of its infidelity was the backdrop of ancient Israel's religious experience. The judgment that God experienced as a consequence of its infidelity was not God's final word. For God comes to comfort Judah and redeem Jerusalem. The coming of Jesus then needs to be understood against the backdrop of ancient Israel's religious experience. It is the decisive movement of God in the world, ensuring that the world will become what God always intended it to be. God will not allow our selfishness and sin to frustrate the divine will for creation. In Jesus, God has become part of creation to transform it from within. God's self-communication begun in creation and continued through the experience of ancient Israel comes to perfection in the incarnation. In Jesus, God has become a human being. That is the good news that the church proclaims today. Leslie Hop, baby. The more you ignore me, the closer I get. You're wasting your time. All right. On to Hebrews. Absolutely. You know, speaking of uh, Christmas Day, uh, one of our, our traditions now living in New York City, because on Christmas Day I'm a little tired, is we go to Chinatown and... Uh, um, and have dinner with my family. And um, 
One day we were uh, getting ready to have our soup dumplings, which is the annual Christmas Day appetizer. And uh, the place is packed with New York City Jews uh, who are wonderful and great. And uh, this guy stood up and he uh, had had a lot to drink that night. And he stood up and he uh, got on the top of the table in this Chinese restaurant. And he said, I'd like to propose a toast to the Goyish Day of Wonder. (laughs) I like that. It was wonderful. But, uh, and so we all uh, had a toast and I told them I was a minister and they all bought around for us and it was a great day. So we celebrated Goyish Day of Wonder that day in Chinatown. But uh, speaking of the unity of God and this contrast, Hebrews chapter one, I think, is the um, quintessential text uh, which articulates from a Jewish Christian perspective, actually, the oneness of God in Christ and where that's actually met. Um, some scholars believe that Hebrews chapter 1 is a sermon, actually possibly given by Barnabas or Paul or somebody, but uh, somebody very thoughtful and familiar with the Jewish faith um, on uh, Psalm 110. And it's uh, actually a really very powerful uh, devotion to read Psalm 110 and then read um, Hebrews, chap- Hebrews, the entire book, in like one sitting. It's very powerful to do. But in here, you have kind of the unity of God that is uh, being articulated, found in Christ. Here's an illustration from New York, not just for New Yorkers, but from New York City history. In 1964, there was a murder that really shook a lot of people up. It was a woman named Kitty Genovese. She was 28 years old. She was killed as she was coming home, and she, she was killed in Kew Gardens. Do you know where Kew Gardens is? Yeah, it's over in Queens. I didn't know that. She was killed in Kew Gardens. She was coming home after she was working a night shift. It was late at night, and she was on the block right in front of her apartment. And an assailant comes and begins attacking her. She was stabbed, and she cried out, My God, he stabbed me. Please help me. Now, this was not a remote spot, apparently. There were apartments all around. And all of a sudden, a lot of lights went on. Windows opened. People looked down. And when the assailant saw that people were opening the windows and looking down, he left. It, and by most, it, it's documented that 38 people looked down. 38 people saw and heard what happened and didn't come down. They didn't get involved. They didn't take a risk to make themselves vulnerable on a late night, mm. perhaps hazardous street in Queens. Nobody of those 38 people even called the police. They just, they didn't want to get involved. And when the assailant, who was holding back for about five minutes, realized nobody was going to get involved, that nobody was coming down, nobody was doing anything, he went back to the stabbed woman, took the $49 she had in her purse and killed her. And people heard this woman's screams and nobody even called the police. And I think what the picture we get in Hebrews 1 is a God who doesn't just take action from a distance, a God that's not indifferent, a God who gets involved, a God who becomes woundable and fragile because he hears his children's cry. Mm. That's, a, that's a, an amazing uh, illustration. And if you do use that in your sermon, make sure you say Merry Christmas right afterwards. But, uh, exactly. <laughs> you know, what's, uh, what's very powerful about this is uh, a couple of things that I think it opens up to us is that... Um, you know, long ago, God spoke to our ancestors in very, in many and various ways by the prophets. You know, and that's, God spoke, and, uh, and, and he, he lets us know that our God is a God who speaks. 
you know, everywhere else and every other religion is about what you see God doing. But the Christian, the Jewish Christian tradition is all about the God who actually speaks to you. And, uh, and how this ties into Christmas is that in these last days, and that's another eschatological point, is that we have been in the last days since um, the ascension. You'll hear a lot of people talking about like the last days just started 30 years ago or something like that. But the truth is, is that we have been in the eschaton, the last days for the last 2,000 years. But And in these last days, God's spoke to us in his final word, which has become flesh and dwelt among us, uh, Jesus Christ, his son. And this is very powerful. So if you want to know what God is saying to you, you cannot go by what you see around you. You have to go by what he has already said in the person and work of his son born in the manger. This is really important uh, that the author of Hebrews is getting across uh, God's unity with Jesus here in this chapter. And then he's going to move on in chapter 2 and demonstrate Jesus's unity with God. And uh, But you see right from the beginning that even the Jewish early Jewish Christians, there's a lot of debate about this, but from the book of Hebrews, they had a very high Christology. And what uh, what this author is trying to get across to his, his people is, is that the final word spoken is in the person and work of Jesus. Um, and then... Um, and this person and work of Jesus is greater than anything else going on, even greater than a message from an angel. You know, anything else, if you want to know what God says and has to say about you or think about you, it's found in Jesus and that he loves you very much. Amen to that. On to John chapter 1. I mean, one of the great, great chapters in the New Testament. Mm. I, I mean, you could spend, you could, you could do a whole podcast series on just these first 14 verses. Um, it is, it is heavy duty. And, um, and John, like the book of Genesis, is, um, uh, is taking us back not just to the other gospels, begin, um, Matthew and Luke begin at uh, the manger. And with the genealogy, but um, but old John here he takes us back to the beginning of time, and uh, yeah. he he lets us yeah. know that Jesus isn't Plan B, but that he has been Plan A since the beginning. Yeah, it's really interesting. Carl Bart in the Church Dogmatics, he's trying to think about what the ancient Church understanding of one person, two natures, fully human, fully divine means in modernity. What it means for us saying, he said, well, you could think of there's two stories going on at once in the person of Jesus. He says, the synoptic gospels and some parts of Paul tell the story this way. Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ, Mm. is the son of God. Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ, the son of God. The John and other parts of Paul start, the son of God is Jesus Christ. So one is a story of ascent Mm. and one is a story of descent. One is a story of the royal man, the, the second Adam, who it's wonderful you see these the the picture of Jesus and the temptation story. He says no in the desert to everything Adam and Eve said yes to in the garden. And Israel and, as well. Right. And he and he 
enters the wilderness and perseveres in faithfulness. So you have that sort of the one true Israelite, the second Adam, but here you have the divine son descending. It's a story of descent. And so that, that's always helped me sort of get my head around the, the, this different ways that the story of Jesus is told in the New Testament. Mm. It's very powerful. I love, uh, you know, one thing to, if you preach on this text, to really kind of hit on, I think, is the uh, description of the world according to John. And, uh, you know, it's not um, a shade of gray. It's not dusk. It is darkness. And this is what has come, light has come into the darkness. Um, and that's, a, that's an important point. I think uh, kind of here in, um, in America and stuff like that, we kind of tend to have this notion that we're basically good or that bad people are over there. But the truth is, is that we all sit in darkness. I remember at a Mockingbird conference, actually, I was talking to... Um, a woman who does youth ministry over in New Jersey, and she said, um, she said to me, she said, you know, um, you know, we went on a pilgrimage, and I'm having a hard time, you know, because when you guys talk about the gospel and the human condition, you talk about it so darkly, and uh, and uh, you know, I have these kids who live in Ridgewood, New Jersey, and they have a wonderful life, and they don't really understand it. And then later I found out she was taking them on a pilgrimage to Iona. And I said, listen, don't take them to a pilgrimage to Iona. Take them on a pilgrimage to Syria or uh, Egypt or, uh, heck, like border Mexico. Show them what life actually is, you know. And this is the truth, is that I think we have a tendency to kind of live into our bubble. But we need to, to get across the point that our common humanity is shared with that of Aleppo. We all sit in darkness apart from this light that has come into the world, the Word made flesh, Jesus Christ for us. Yeah, I, I, I want to I echo those sentiments, Jake. And I want to read to you from my favorite commentary on the Gospel of John. It might just actually be my favorite commentary, period, I think. Mm. Uh, it's by Dale Bruner. Ugh, and it's, that's a great it's, one. It's just called The Gospel of John, a commentary, and it's really wonderful. And in it, he says this. The gospel, according to John, was written out of the thrill of actual contact with its leading figure, and one senses the tremors of this contact on every subsequent page. John's phrase, full of grace and truth, is exactly synonymous with ancient Israel's frequent celebration of the Lord God's steadfast love and faithfulness. With the word grace, one thinks of the wide horizontal beam of the cross and of the wide, outstretched, world-embracing arm of the all-merciful, all-compassionate God, the major longing of the human heart. With the word truth, one thinks of the vertical beam of the cross, going down deep and up high to suggest the power of straight, real, honest truth, the major longing of the human mind. This truth is powerful enough to support the wide, horizontal beam of God's grace that stretches Around the world. Mm, I love that. That's very powerful. And the truth is, is that this truth that they have been in contact with, John lets us know that he's been in contact with it. In that last verse, he says, And the word became flesh and lived among us. Emmanuel, God is with us. And we have seen his glory. The glory is of the Father's only Son, full of grace and truth. What we are receiving. Uh, is in is is a, a message from someone who saw Jesus, and uh, this is what we get. We get their message handed on to us. Can we talk about Frozen? Yeah, go for it. This insight comes from the Logos 
blog, and the author of this particular post is Mark Ward, and he's actually reflecting here on the song Let It Go, which was this mega hit. You know, it sold, uh, it, it, it won the Oscar for Best Original Song, reached the top five in the Billboard 100, and sold 10.9 million copies. And he says this, like some Oedipal monster, the pop song has eaten up the movie that gave it life. Because the Frozen story as a whole stands firmly against Elsa's choice in that song. And he says this raises interesting questions about how you interpret scripture and what authorial intent is. He cites Tim Keller's book on preaching, which I think is quite good. But Keller uses Let It Go as an example of how contemporary culture kind of uncritically enthrones our passions. And he says, the song is sung by a character determined no longer to be the good girl that her family and society wanted her to be. Instead, she would let go and express what she'd been holding back inside. There's no right or wrong for her. This is the example of expressive individualism that Bella taught, the sociologist Robert Bella described. Identity is not realized in traditional societies by sublimating our individual desires for the good of our family and people. Instead, we call ourselves by asserting our individual desires against society, by expressing our feelings and fulfilling our dreams, regardless of what anyone says. So Keller does not like the song and is pretty critical of it. But this guy has a different take. He says that we also have to think about the movie as a whole and not merely the song in isolation. Anna rescues her sister from the selfish solo life she, she gives into by letting it go. Mm. This movie's story ends up undermining and then jettisoning the expressive individualism of the sovereign self. <laughs> Elsa tries on for size <laughs> while striding up the North Mountain. I agree. Anna's love for her elder sister, despite years of apparent coldness from her, is one of the more, more beautiful redemptive loves I've ever seen in film. And in the end, Elsa submits again to right and wrong even quote-unquote rules, by taking up her queenly responsibilities in the land of Arendelle. This the movie portrays as good, not as a constriction of her individual rights. I love the love of Anna for Elsa. Romantic love isn't the only true love, and it isn't even always true. And he says, I want my little girl to know this. It's the major reason I let my kids watch Frozen. And I think that's what I, and he has some great points later about reading scripture in the context of the whole story. I think that's really the beauty of the incarnation is that, you know, you walk around uh, our town Langhorn here, just outside of Philadelphia, and all, there's all these little historic signs because George Washington once stayed here. And you see this in all sorts of little towns around the Northeast. That if mm -hmm. Washington or, or one of the founders was here, it sort of hallows the, air, the area and, and makes it sort of forever sacred in, American, in the American imagination. And the fact is, over every part of our lives, especially the broken, messy parts, there's this sign that the King of Kings stayed here, tabernacled, tabernacled here, moved into the neighborhood mm. so that you could eternally dwell in his neighborhood. Oh, that's so good. And now he's tabernacled in your heart. So when we think we've sung our let it go and our li life is our own, God will take even our rebellious, our most rebellious moments and weave them into his own love song for us. Amen. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas to you, my friend. Thanks for listening to Same Old Song, the lectionary podcast of Mockingbird Ministries. To find out more about Mockingbird, head on over to our website, mbird.com. And if you've got thoughts or feedback, insights you'd like to share, this is a new endeavor, so we'd love to hear them. You send me an email at scottjones at mbird.com. Thanks again for listening and have a great week. 